Thanks for that great reading. Um, it was very well read, wasn't it? Great story, great story. Um, the easy part for us lay preachers is the preparation. Um, you get to read lots of books and do lots of thinking and do lots of praying. The hard part's this bit. <laughs> Isn't it, Ian? Yeah, Ron's not here, but he had a technical difficulty last week. I hope that I don't have the same. I'm Mike Croft, one of the church's lay preachers. I was 19 when I became a Christian and I was working as a trainee carpenter. I was the youngest member of the crew, fairly rough and ready bunch of fellas, and my conversion to Jesus was not well received. As a brand new Christian, I was however welcomed into the fellowship at St Paul's Oatley, where I met all sorts of people, but several men in particular stood out to me. They were real gentlemen and spent lots of their own time with me, answering my many questions about Jesus, God and the Bible and the world of work. There was something very attractive about their lives and I was later to understand that it was their faith working itself out as they lived day to day. The professionals, the minister, Lawrence Lovell, and trainee minister, Ron Watts, were also great Christian men. Well, there you go, I did it wrong. With similar attractiveness to their faith. But in my mind, they were paid to be like that. And I imagined that their job didn't have the challenges of working alongside unbelievers. So I looked up to Norman and Colin and I wanted to be like them. It's like Matt said from Philippians recently. We should look to follow in the footsteps of those with more experience in this Christian life to imitate them and walk according to their example. Doing so will not necessarily make for an easy life. There will be times when being a Christian will be perceived to be in conflict with the values of the school, recreation or work environment. There may even be times when there's actual conflict and you have to leave that environment. You'll recall the recent furor over the appointment of the local businessman Andrew Thorburn as Essendon AFL Chief Executive. He lasted one day. He lasted one day because of a so-called shock link to a church. Not to a strip club or to a gambling syndicate. Not to a drug scandal. They would barely have raised an eyebrow. This was a shock link to a church. It was not even a link to a controversial social media post like the whole Israel Folau business. No, this new CEO was forced out not because of anything he said or anything he did, but simply because he's linked to a mainstream Christian church which teaches the Bible. Would I have the courage and the faith to follow in Andrew Thorburn's example? When asked to choose between his job and his church, he gave up what was reported to be a salary of $850,000. Despite this, what would seem a terrible setback. His response has been gracious, thoughtful, compassionate and intelligent. He said, however, today 
it would become clear to me that my personal Christian faith is not tolerated or permitted in the public square, at least by some and even perhaps by many. I was being required to compromise beyond the level that my conscience allowed. People should be able to hold different views on complex personal and so moral matters and be able to live and work together even when those differences and always with respect. Behaviour is the key. This is an all-important part of a tolerant and diverse society. Here's a successful Christian businessman making an uncompromising stand in order to maintain his faith. Could I do the same? Could you? Well, with God's help, yes, we can. This summer series called Options for Craft is asking us to look with fresh eyes at some familiar Bible passages. We've just heard Daniel chapter 6, the story of Daniel in the lion's den. But this is more than just a story. This is ancient history. And it's ancient history of the very best kind because it's history of one of God's people who did not compromise his faith. We're going to look at the life of this man from the ancient past, a man who was in a very influential position and held on to his faith in the God of the Bible. Let me pray. Dear God, we do thank you that we have so many examples in the Bible and all around us of you helping people of faith through various trials and temptations. Help us now to understand what you would say to us through the life of Daniel. The book of Daniel describes how a Jewish youth grew up to become a very successful public administrator in Babylon in the 6th century BC. Now much ink's been spilt arguing about when and by whom Daniel was written. But the Bible does not question his historical position nor <clears throat> excuse me, nor that Daniel was the principal author. Just look at the references to Daniel in Hebrews 11, 33 and 34. He trusted the God who stopped the mouths of lions and quenched the power of fire. And then Jesus' description of him as the prophet Daniel in Matthew 24, 15. So let's look at Daniel chapter 6. In Daniel chapter 6, verse 1, it reads, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer loss, no loss. You can see on the map on the screen there how large the empire of Darius was in the 6th century BC. It's no wonder that he needed 120 satraps and three presidents. But we're a little bit ahead of ourselves. Who is this Daniel? And how did he get to become a president? From chapter 1, verse 3, we read that Daniel was from the Jewish nobility, that as a youth he was without blemish, of good appearance, and skilful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning and competent to stand in the king's palace. 
We learn too that he and his friends spent three years learning the language and literature of the Chaldeans. But they continue to maintain their faith in the God of the Jews, the God of the Bible. After these three years training and living on God's rations, they proved to be ten times more competent than any of their peers. How old do you think Daniel was when he was exiled to Babylon? I do require hands up for this. Who thinks he was, A, 13 to 15? Couple. B, 16 to 18? Uh-huh. A few more. C, 19 to 21? All oh, right. And D, 22 to 25? Well, a lovely spread. A normal distribution, I would have called it. I have to tell you, A is the most likely answer. Daniel and his companions were probably 13 to 15 years old when they were taken to Babylon for re-education. According to Plato, the education of Persian youths began in their 14th year. And it's reasonable to assume that the Babylonians commenced training of young people at about the same age as the Persians. Daniel then would likely have been 14 or 15 years of age when he was taken into captivity and began his training. And I read that they were most likely made into eunuchs as well, although that's not mentioned in the scriptures. Well, here's a second question for you. It follows from the first. How old do you think Daniel was when he was placed in the lion's den? 18 to 30? 31 to 50? Fifty-one to seventy. Seventy-one to ninety. There's a lot of don't knows out there. Well, I'm going to answer that question in a minute, but let's have a look at Daniel chapter one. We will get to six in a minute. You can see that it opens with these words. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the last verse of chapter 1 reads, And Daniel remained there in Babylon until the first year of King Cyrus. These two verses of the first chapter give us a time frame for the events Daniel records in his book. From the earliest days of the Babylonian Empire through 70 years of Jewish exile to the beginning of Persian rule under Cyrus. Verse 1 places us near in time to Babylon's victory over Egypt at the Battle of Carchemish in 605 BC. It seems that immediately after this victory, as Nebuchadnezzar was returning, you can see where Egypt is on the map there, from his victory in Egypt, he stopped on the outskirts of Jerusalem, the capital city of the kingdom of Judah. Judah had thrown its lot in with Egypt in the Great War and of course was now on the losing side. Nebuchadnezzar threatened Jerusalem with a siege. King Joachim capitulated and he allowed him to take articles from the temple to much shame and a handful of the finest young men of Babylon back to Babylonia to become servants in his house in order to make his empire greater using their talents to his own ends. Verse 1 places us around 605 BC and verse 21, the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, is 540 years. 
BC. That's a period of about 65 years. So Daniel lived in exile for 65 years and is about 80 years old, think about it, when his sleepover with the lion occurs. Hands up all the 80-year-olds plus. Fancy going amongst lions? No. That was the age of Daniel. He was taken from his homeland as a very young man and spent three years being re-educated into the ways of Babylon to be a public servant. After this intensive three years of training, Daniel and his friends become noted for two things. Their outstanding qualities as public servants and their faith in the God of the Hebrews. Somehow, during these intense three years, they were able to maintain their faith. We learn that Daniel served Nebuchadnezzar for 40 years. Then he served for a few short-lived kings until Nabonus became king in 556 and appointed his son Belshazzar as his co-regent in 533. Daniel then worked under Belshazzar until Cyrus, the king of Persia, took control in 539 BC. Lots of dates, but there you go. Surprisingly, when Cyrus appoints Darius the Mede as viceroy in Babylon, Daniel serves him too. So we come to chapter 6. You can open it up again. We've read that Darius divided his empire into 120 areas and put a satrap in charge of each to keep the peace and collect taxes and administering their work with three presidents, one of whom was Daniel. But in verse 3 we read, Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was within him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now just think about it. Daniel's in his 80s when he distinguished himself in this way. So it's not really a surprise that there's a spirit of envy from the other two presidents and some of the satraps. Look at verse 4. Then the president and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint nor any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall find, not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. They realise that Daniel is a highly competent and honest public administrator and their only hope of getting him cut down to size or even eliminated will be in connection with his religion. Well, how do they know this? In Daniel chapter 2, we read that when Daniel is 18, he and his friends ask for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery of the king's dreams. Daniel delivers the interpretation even though it's a bad one for the king. Then in chapter 3, as a 34-year-old's, his friend's uncompromising stance gets them thrown into the fiery furnace. They proclaim, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. And he does. He delivers them from the fiery furnace with none of them even smelling of smoke afterwards. In spite of all these attempts to turn them into Babylonians, 
For three men have maintained their faith in the one true God. In chapter 4, we read that the 58-year-old Daniel is unafraid to tell the king that the message of his dream is from God. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord, the king. Then in chapter 5, the 80-year-old Daniel delivers God's judgment upon the vain and foolish Belshazzar just prior to the overthrow of Babylon by Cyrus, king of Persia. God has numbered your days. You'd think that this statement would lead to punishment, but Belshazzar is such a fool that he rewards Daniel by making him his second in command. Now, you'd normally expect that the invaders would get rid of all the leadership along with King Belshazzar. But no. God protects Daniel so that when Cyrus appoints Darius the Mede as his viceroy in Babylon, Darius appoints Daniel as one of his three presidents. It's during this time that God gives Daniel some extraordinary dreams and visions. He records these in chapters 7 to 12. It appears, though, that these aren't random, spontaneous events, but rather they occur when Daniel is particularly focused on God. In chapter 9, we learn that Daniel knew the word of the Lord very well as he references Jeremiah's prophecy. I, Daniel, perceived in the books of the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem namely 70 years. That's how long they were in Babylon. He also refers to other prophets and the law. In Daniel 9.6 he prays, We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spake in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. And then in 9.10, And have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. We know that up until he was deported to Babylon, Daniel was a noble child being educated to serve God's people. He was educated in the law, the prophets and the wisdom, as well as the other aspects of public service in Jerusalem. Not only that, but we know that on occasions he prayed and fasted. Look at chapter 10, verse 2. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for a full three weeks. He was mourning for the fate of God's temple and his holy city, Jerusalem. Daniel is a man who knows his scriptures. He knows his God and he is a man of prayer. Back in chapter 6, the presidents and satraps who were unhappy with Daniel's forthcoming promotion set a trap to have Daniel thrown into the lion's den. Did you notice that when they made their claim that all the presidents agreed with this piece of binding law, Daniel wasn't present? When he becomes aware of the document, Daniel maintains his lifelong habit and goes home to pray. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper room open towards Jerusalem. 
he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. This wasn't something new in a crisis. It wasn't a parachute prayer. It was something he had done previously. Daniel has lived a righteous and faithful life in a senior leadership role in Babylon and he's kept his leadership practices in his home. He hasn't paraded his practices in front of others but done them in the privacy of his upper room. As Jesus says in Matthew 6.1, Beware of practising your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Daniel knows that his God sees what is done in secret. Jesus, when teaching us about the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6.6, says, But when you pray... Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father, who sees in secret, will reward you. In verse 11, the presidents and their crew spy on Daniel and catch him in prayer. So they bring him to Darius for sentencing. In verse 14, we read that Darius was much distressed that he had to carry out his own law and he tried to figure out a way to rescue Daniel but to no avail, so he's cast into the den. But the king, recognising Daniel's faith, declares to him, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a scene that's echoed 540 years later, the den is sealed with a stone, and the king's own signet, and that of the Lord's, who brought the charge against Daniel. Darius has a sleepless night worrying about the fate of Daniel. Whilst he knows that Daniel's faith, he didn't have any confidence in it. Look at verse 19. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, Oh, Daniel! Servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. A bit of flattery never goes astray. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also, before you, O king, I have done no harm. He's done no harm to the king. God has saved Daniel. He's come to no harm, just like his friends in the fiery furnace. He's saved by his God, and this pleases Darius very much. Daniel's saved from the lions, and in true Persian fashion, his sentence falls upon his accusers. They've been malicious in their accusation and they are families, they and their families are eaten alive as a result. It's a harsh justice system. The whole business causes Darius to write, I make a decree that all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the, the, li- 
before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall have beat to no end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Darius recognised that Daniel has served his God continually and this God has miraculously delivered him from the lions. Daniel has been a man of faith all his long life, a man who knows his law, his prophets and his wisdom. He was a man of devotion who prayed three times a day and who fasted and prayed on occasions as the need arose. He did not have a showy faith, but prayed in his own special upper room, away from prying eyes. Jesus was a bit like Daniel in this too. After his baptism, Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness and he often went to a quiet place to pray. As it says in Mark 1.35, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. And in Luke 19, now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. In the garden, he prayed so hard that he sweated blood. He also frequently commanded people not to broadcast his miracles. Jesus also knew the scriptures so well that he constantly confounded the experts. He often said to them, Have you not read? And then explained the scriptures to them. Jesus' life was one of full of grace and truth. As it says in John 1.14, The word has become flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son of God, full of grace and truth. It is by trusting in this Jesus that we can have a faith like Daniel's. It is by belief in him as the resurrected Son of God that we can become God's children like Daniel. Look at John 1.12. But to all who did receive him, Jesus who believed in Jesus' name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Are you a child of God? Does he rule your life? Have you received Jesus into your life? If the answer is no, then now's the time for you to change all that. There's a prayer for you on the screen. This prayer is for you to tell God you are sorry for trying to live independently of him. It's a chance for you to tell him you are sorry for not belonging to Jesus and to ask him to forgive you and make you one of his children. I'm going to pause for a minute so that folks can pray that prayer. If you've just said that prayer, God's made you his child and you've become a disciple of Jesus. Please be sure to tell someone about it before you leave today. Now each child of God must follow him where he leads. His promise is to be my light. As he says in John 8:12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. Don't be distracted by anything else 
But follow the advice of Hebrews 13.5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what any man can do to me. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego went into the fiery furnace, not fearing what man wanted to do to them, but trusting God for deliverance. Daniel went into the lion's den, knowing that he was blameless before God and that he had done no harm to the king. He trusted God too. Andrew Thorburn quit a high-paying job rather than compromise his faith in Jesus. How did he get this brave faith? Jesus promises to be in us the light of life. It will not surprise you to learn that this light is provided by Jesus as we build our relationship with him through regular and consistent religious activities. We've seen this in Daniel's life, namely daily prayer and deliberate learning from the scriptures. We can also benefit from regular fellowship with other believers too. We need to be like the New Testament Christians in Acts 2.42. We're meant to be devoted to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. With our great God's help, we can all dare to be a Daniel. In conclusion, let me pray. Dear God, help us to learn what the scriptures say. Help us to learn to be like Daniel and pray regularly. Help us to be content with what we have, for you have said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Draw near to each of us so that we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. In Jesus' name, Amen. There's going to be a time of reflection in a minute. If you've got questions, um, just see me after the service.